what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.tv. My name is Alan Jackson, co-founder and co-director of the Foot Candle Film Society and Foot Candle Film Festival. Across the table from me, Chris Fry, also with the same titles, yes. co-director, co-founder of the same film society and film festival. Chris, how are you doing? I'm I'm doing good. Doing good. Uh, we've had snow in North Carolina recently, so it's yes. good to get out of the house and report a po- oh. podcast. Even though you go to a dark and enclosed basement, so you know what's the difference? Uh, but, just, hey, yeah, don't even get, get me started the on the snow. I am not a not a snow fan. Sure, not a big fan of the snow. So uh, anything that limits my mobility and <laughs> options. Uh, I'm I'm never a fan of so happy to see it be melting away slowly yes, slowly but it is starting to kind of creep away from us there so so it gives us a little more opportunities to head out to the movies which we have got to do lately uh, although the two re- movies we're going to be reviewing one of them we got to see in the comfort of our own home so uh, we will be reviewing the film Roma in a few moments that is the latest from Alfonso Cuarón that is actually exclusively, well, not exclusively, but primarily being distributed by Netflix. Most so, people will probably see it on Netflix. I think it's had a limited theatrical release, but most people are going to experience it on their home TV set. So we'll be talking about Roma in a little bit. But first, we're going to be reviewing the film Can You Ever Forgive Me? This is the latest film starring Melissa McCarthy, directed by Mariel Heller. And it is based on the uh, true life story of uh, author Lee Israel. And some dealings she had uh, trying to gain some more fame and, I guess, financial success in her own professional life. So we're going to talk about that film in just a moment, followed by the review of Roma. Then we'll go into some movie news that we have to share with you on, on this episode today. And then we're going to wrap up the show like we always do with our recommendations, a film that we think might be worth your time to check out. Uh, here we're creeping into the holiday season, so you might have a little more time to check out some of these films. So we want to give you a few options to look at before those family get-together times. Or if you just need that little bit of a break, a uh, couple hours to go steal away and check something out. Uh, these will be films that should be fairly accessible for you to see, either through some streaming platform or online or other vehicles. So Chris, sounds like we got a full show to get to. You ready to get started? Yeah, cue the trailer. All right. First up, can you ever forgive me? Quite by accident, I find myself in a rather criminal position. What criminal activity could possibly be involved in, except a crime of fashion, of course? I'm embellishing literary letters by prominent writers. I love his writing. Particularly clever, don't you think? Caustic wit. (laughs) This is quite something. These are wonderful. I thought so, too. Name your price. You were looking at one month's rent. What are we going to do? Gamble, shop, drink. (laughs) Ms. Israel, I have a couple of questions regarding the last letter I purchased. Uh In Can You Ever Forgive Me, uh, a latest film from director Mariel Heller, starring Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant, we are following the story of Lee Israel, a, a, a real-life person. This is based on her own autobiography, uh, where she has kind of fallen out of favor in the, uh, in the uh, art world. Uh, she's an author that focuses more on biographies of past authors and celebrities. 
but she's found herself not really being as successful anymore in that, in that line of work. So she starts to turn a little bit towards uh, an idea of forgery of uh, actual documents supposedly written by some of these famous authors that she finds out that there's a pretty lucrative market for out there. So we follow this, uh, this situation, these trials that she goes through along the way, uh, building a relationship and friendship with Richard E. Grant, who plays a character named uh, Jack. Jack Hawk along the, in the film as well. Again, based on an autobiography by Miss Israel, directed by uh, Mariel Heller, who I think previously did Diary of a Teenage Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, it's been some TV shows and some screenplays she's worked on as well. So, Chris, with this film, we have yet another you know biography picture in a way, right? Not a strict biography, in that it you know it's still fairly focused on Lee Israel as the main character, but we do follow a few things on the side as well. Um, but we have uh, Melissa McCarthy playing a role that she's getting a lot of acclaim for right now, playing a role obviously as a real person, but infusing a little bit of the Melissa McCarthy personality, but along with a little bit more morose and seriousness to the storyline because it does have some fairly serious moments in the, in the film. So let me ask you, I'm really going to focus on Melissa McCarthy because I mean, this is her film. This is kind of her showcase. I know that, uh, uh, Richard E. Grant's getting a lot of attention as well, but focusing on Melissa McCarthy, do you feel like her presence in the film helped to elevate this film, to make it something greater than it could have been in other hands? Or do you feel like having her in this role actually probably brought the source material down uh, where it was a little more trying to infuse her typical Melissa McCarthy personality into a story that didn't really need it. So I'm just kind of curious about her performance first before we dig into the rest of the film. Well, it's interesting because having seen the film and kind of knowing the type of person that at least the film leads you to believe Lee Israel was, mm-hmm. um, she's kind of a loner and she had kind of a wit or a sense of humor seemingly. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why in the film you see that she is able to forge things pretty successfully. It seems like mm-hmm. by uh, Dorothy Parker and Noel Coward who were known for their wit. At one point mm-hmm. in the film, she actually says, you know, I'm more Dorothy Parker than Dorothy Parker. Yeah. You know, right. So I think I can see why Melissa McCarthy was, was cast in this film. Um, I like Melissa McCarthy. You know, we have talked about some of our previous work. She did Spy. I mm-hmm. think we were, I know we reviewed Spy. I'm not sure if we reviewed Bridesmaids or not, but, you know, she kind of mm-hmm. came to rise and prominence, people knowing who she was in that. And then she was in Ghostbusters, you know, mm-hmm. the most recent reboot. So people are familiar with who she is. I feel like for me, and it could be, you know, the, inconvenience of having seen the trailer for this movie, which sets you up for a certain type of movie. And then, you know, the movie is billed as a biography comedy crime mm-hmm. and, you know, it was nominated golden globes for it's, comedy. She's nominated for best actress in a comedy slash musical, which that's a whole nother, <laughs> right. whole nother topic to right. get into at a later time. So, um, I think I felt like it, she does, she gives a good performance, but in a way I think she's trying to, diverge too hard from where her strengths lie. I think Mm -hmm. she is a good actress. She's obviously a good comedian, but I felt like it was so dialed back in this film. I feel like it kind of hurt it a little Mm bit. Um, And maybe, you know, it's all expectations, but I feel like she was so restrained that I didn't feel like I saw what Lee Israel was capable of as far as, you know, the wit that she was capable of. You get little hints of it. 
and you mentioned Richard Grant, Richard E. Grant, mm-hmm. the times when they are actually sparring, that's when the movie kind of comes to life that's some a little bit. To it, yeah. yeah, and so I wish there had been more of that, or you would have. A lot of times you see flashes of her just typing at a typewriter as opposed to maybe hearing her monologuing what like mm-hmm. I don't know, it just I feel like it was she was too restrained, but I, I can see why she was cast. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, a de- person in a different role, I don't know, to answer your question, but I think I can definitely see the strength of having her in the film. Yeah. What what are your thoughts on that? Um I thought I thought it was a good performance. I liked I liked watching her. Um it it it's still you know it wasn't a groundbreaking performance it wasn't anything completely out of type it was really like you said it was just let's take Melissa McCarthy and let's just constrain it down more let's just kind of push it down a little bit more and give it a little more of a very uh, uh, kind of morbid very very uh, very serious tone to it right. she still had her moments there's a scene where she's kind of having a confrontation with her her agent. Yeah, that, that was a little fiery. And of course, some of the scenes she has with with Richard E. Grant, I agree, are very, very good. Um, I liked her performance. I, I didn't think I thought it was a fine performance. I I think she was probably the right person to cast for this role based on what we're led to be told about Lee Israel as a real person. So right. uh, I thought it was good. I thought it was a good performance. Uh, I thought Stephen E. Grant was also really good. Richard. I'm sorry. You, <laughs> I, I did that last night as well. So Richard, Stephen, you know, uh, Richard E. Grant, I thought was also really good as Jack, uh, a friend that shows up. I liked his role because I felt like um, it could have been, it, it was initially very stereotypical. Right. And it could have stayed that way. But I actually think it did develop some depth by late in the film that I liked. There was actually a little bit more to this friendship, a little bit more to this relationship, a little bit more depth there for his performance. So I think by the end of the film, I really had grown to really like his his, his performance there in that role. Their, their I guess, last scene together mm-hmm. was one of my favorite scenes in the movie and some of my favorite moments between the two of them. I agree. It's yeah. kind of co-conspirator, but just the way they're talking to one another. And actually, McCarthy delivers one of the funniest lines, kind of a throwaway as they're parting ways. Yeah. And I think it's one of the funniest things in the film and just yeah. his reaction to it. And yeah, it's just, yeah. It, I, and I think that gave me a glimmer of what this film might've been like. And I, mm. there again, like you're saying character of Lee Israel, while she had a sense of humor or wit, I guess she was also very self-contained and mm. dialed down yeah. and morose and somber. So I guess that was a way of being true to the actual character, I guess, sure. and not dialing her performance up, but she dialed it down. So, well, I'll, I'll say with the film, I thought I thought the story was very interesting. Uh, I think it's just an interesting story all the, all the way around. I mean, you know, I, obviously based on true story, you know, you don't know how much was embellished or how much built up, but overall, I think it played pretty straightforward in the story. I have a feeling this is probably pretty close to the way things went down in her situation. Um, <laughs> sure. And I think the film did a good job of building up the tension you feel when she's starting to get in really deep into the situation and you know the walls are closing in. And I felt this, the film did a good job of building that tension up. Outside of that, I thought the filmmaking was pretty straightforward. Okay. There wasn't a lot to it. You know, it was a pretty straight telling of what was going on with the story. I don't think the direction and the cinematography or anything was really anything that was a, a highlight. It was truly the, the screenplay and the story is what drove this whole thing from that, or at least what tried to make this film happen. Right. Um, so overall, 
I like the film. Um, I do have some misgivings, some things that didn't work as well for me, but I thought overall it, it did what it was set out to do, which is tell the story and give us a good dramatic interpretation of, of a real life story. And it, and it checked that box and did that. So overall, Chris, Chris, what were some thoughts for you on overall the film in general? Yeah. I mean, I thought something that I admired, I think we're pretty much on the same page. Something that I admired about the film was Lee Israel and her, you know, co-conspirator Jack. They are very flawed people. Oh yeah. And the movie doesn't try to varnish over their flaws. Mm-hmm. You know, like we've mentioned, she's kind of, you know, she likes to keep to herself. She doesn't always, she doesn't mind being blunt to people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she has a problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jack is, you know, he apparently maybe sells drugs, cocaine, maybe, yeah. maybe not. Mm-hmm. Um, and isn't always the most reliable person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they just, you see all these faults and they don't varnish over them. And, you know, they're not really kind of likable people. And the movie yeah. doesn't, I don't feel like tries to like, you know, typical biography problem. You do this movie and you set this person up on a pedestal and maybe they have a couple of faults, but overall you come away just thinking like, Oh, they're such a good person or, you know, this movie doesn't bother doing that. I mean, she does a crime, she commits it. She's you know, it's, it's, it's pretty worse than all. By the end of the film, they're still flawed people. Right. There yeah, it's not like they've had this dramatic no. shift change. There may they be a little no. acknowledgement. There may be a little learning. There may be a little desire to better some parts. But they're still very, very, very flawed at the end. And so. That's, so that's something that I can say, although I felt like, and I'll touch on some of them, you know, the, the weakness for me in the film wasn't the acting, um, wasn't the story or whatever. It was just in somehow the script or maybe the mm-hmm. direction, maybe. And I feel like... For example, there's a relationship with a bookshop owner that they kind of hint at. And I will say it was satisfying in that they didn't carry it to kind of a stereotypical conclusion. But I felt like it could have been woven in a little stronger without spoiling Mm -hmm. anything about that plot thread. Also, there's you see that she mentioning that she's not very good with other people. There seems to be the one person that she shows somewhat warmth for i guess her building supervisor and Mm -hmm. kind of oddly the building supervisor's mom yeah yeah and you know that's kind of hinted on i guess it's to try to let us get a window into yeah she can be pretty you know prickly and grumpy with people but she does actually have a soft center for her cat Mm -hmm. (laughs) but also for you know this older lady who's like and you but then you could say well that's just because it's but I don't get a sense. It's just manipulating because she gets to stay there, rent, not rent free, but that she gets a, to delay paying her rent. It was a so little was odd. Of, I think right. it was trying to cover too many bases and create these other little vignettes of her character that didn't really get fleshed out. Um, because, you know, if you take, think about it, if you take out the the landlord's mother, Correct. and you take out the book, bookshop owner. Correct. Then there's really nobody that she has any personal affection for except for her cat. Correct. And I think the film was trying to humanize her a little bit, but I actually don't feel like it really worked well enough. And, and I guess to make it even edgier, they could have just like not tried to humanize her at all. Yeah. I mean, and just let her be this biting, sarcastic yeah. person that, yeah, I don't, I'll say to <laughs> yeah, admirable for me, for the movie at the end, it's one of the few movies where I mean, movies have done this where during the end credits, they, you have the makers of the, you know, you have the credits, 
that maybe you show, you know, cut scenes or, you know, things like that to make it funny or to make the credits entertaining. Yeah. These credits, I'm kind of surprised instead of doing the full screen, you know, like this is what happened to these people. And then you go to the credits. Yeah. They did the credits and I didn't pay attention to them at all because the things that they were putting yeah. kind of the history or kind of like what happened after the camera stopped rolling and you learn, I thought they were pretty entertaining. Oh, they were very entertaining. And very I, feel, well done. I feel bad for the people who made the movie because <laughs> I wasn't paying attention to them yeah. because they told all these anecdotes and kind of. It was like during the first third of the credits. I mean, they were running on the side, right, the side right. of the And they fill so, in yeah. all these details about kind of what happened yeah. to Lee Israel. And there it's just fascinating. And, um, so I liked that. Yeah. <laughs> but that was interesting. Um, I, I, I will say with the film, the, the thing that probably kept me from really, really liking the film is as fascinated as I, as I was by the story. Right. Uh, again, kind of going back, you know, Lee Israel's an author that she'd written some books that were pretty big sellers back in the time. Not very successful writer now. She hasn't written anything in a while. Um, she wants to write us a, a, a biography of uh Fanny Bryce? Yes, not uh, Fanny Price. Fanny Bryce. Fanny Bryce. Uh, yes. Which is, you know, a vaudeville performer that nobody's heard of, and that's kind of a running gag throughout the film that nobody's heard of this person. So right. nobody has an interest in this book. So that's when she finds out that she can actually write as these authors and fake some of these letters and correspondence that they never actually wrote, but playing them off like they did and selling them to art collectors and dealers. Um, all throughout the film, we realize that she is stuck in this past in a way where she's so fascinated by these entertainers and authors of the past. Right. That's what she writes about. That's who she's now writing as in these letters. Never really get a sense why, or never really get a sense of kind of how, what it's doing to her. The fact that she's now performing as these people. Mm -hmm. I think there was a lot of depth they could have explored with that. I think this is an interesting concept. I just feel like it was very glossed over. It was more focused on the criminal side of it. Which I get, you know, you're going to make a film about more of a, this burrowing down this path of a, of a criminal. But to me, it was really interesting to think, okay, she's now adopting the personalities of these people that she's written about for years. I would think there's a little bit more interest to go into deeper on that. And the film never really did. It kept it very high level at that. So it was a little, a little bit of a disappointment for me. I wish there, I think there was a lot more interesting areas to mine in that storyline. Yeah. I think that's ultimately where I fall on the film. I thought, you know, it was good. It was okay. It was a serviceable biopic, but Mm -hmm. left there. I felt like there was a lot of potential that wasn't quite recognized with the stars you had with the story. I felt like, you know, it was an okay film, but there was a great film that was just, you know, right there that had the potential to be made. Uh, I kind of agree with that. So, and again, I, I just felt like the story was fairly straightforward in its mm-hmm. storytelling style and its direction. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but no. there's just nothing really to elevate it to uh, a greater film. I kind of see now as I look at like nominations that are coming out, Golden Globes have been announced, the SAG sure. Awards. This is getting some acclaim for acting for the two lead actors, which I, I agree. I think they're worthy of getting some praise for their performances, but the film's not really getting a lot of other love outside of just the two lead performances. And I think that's partly why we're talking about it. it, it it's, it's just, it didn't elevate the story. It didn't elevate the production to anything really great that it could have been. It just really focused on like letting these two lead performers have a great performance and tell a very straightforward story. And then that's it. So yeah, uh, I would have liked to have seen more with it. I think it could have been a lot more. But overall, as it as it fell out, 
you know, on a one to five scale, I'm kind of using the whole letterbox. It's about a three for me. I think it's kind of right in the middle. Sure. Good, good film. I can recommend it, but um, mainly just for lead performances. And if you're fascinated by the, the story, the actual underlying original, uh, you know, autobiography elements of the story, then I think it's worth seeing. So, um, Before we move on, yeah. uh, I think you have an interesting kind of note that you can give about what the director's next project's going to be. Oh, yeah. So, um, And I actually mm-hmm. have an interesting note about what Liz McCarthy's next project will be. Kind of Ooh. not straying too far into news, but I think it's just interesting. Um, why don't you uh, talk yeah. about what the director's going to be? So Mariel Heller, the director of the film, and also uh, has done some, some, some screenplay work, I believe, in some other productions as well. She's also a, an actor, so she has kind of experience in all those areas. I thought it was really interesting that her next upcoming project as director, at least according to IMDb right now, is a uh, film about Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. Uh, you know, we had the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, that came out this year. But they're actually working on a more dramatic uh, story around that. And it's going to be starring uh, Tom Hanks as Fre- uh, Fred Rogers, which I think is probably pretty spot on. I mean, I think Tom Hanks can pull that off in his his sleep. Um, I don't think there's going to be any issue there. So it's kind of interesting to see that it's another, I don't know if the story is going to be based on a memoir or any kind of document, or if it's just purely based on his, you know, his life. Um, But it is interesting to see that both between, Diary of a Teenage Girl, which I believe is based on some sort of book. Um, I think so, a graphic novel. Yeah, and yeah. then Can You Ever Forgive Me, based on an autobiography. And then the Mr. Rogers film, obviously based on a real person. It seems to be very much a, a style and a type of story that she seems to be gravitating to as a director. So, so okay, Melissa McCarthy, we mentioned how her career, you mentioned the director's next project. Melissa McCarthy, her next project is a film called The Kitchen. And why I bring that up hmm. is... You know, this film was kind of steering her towards more dramatic material. And we talked about how, yeah, yeah, it was pretty successful. Well, seemingly her next project is going to be very dramatic um, because The Kitchen is the story of some wives of, I believe it's Irish mobsters. Their husbands get nabbed and then they have to kind of take on the role of doing some crime stuff. In a weird way, the brief description makes it, makes it sound like kind of an Irish version of Widows. Um, because wow. it's several, it's several wives who have their husbands taken away, put in. I don't think killed, but put in prison, and then they have to kind of, you know, do the workings of the mob, take over for them. Mm-hmm. So just very huh. interesting, and it seems to be dramatic as well, not comedic. Okay, so of course, the say, details are still pretty. Well, early. I was going to say it sounds like it could go either direction, but okay. it leans more to the drama. But right, could be. So there's just inter- and it's scheduled to come out in 2019. So weird to me, widows. We had widows this year. We yeah, have that is kind the of kitchen odd. next year. So well, Melissa McCarthy, I think, is an interesting actress. I think she's extremely talented. Um, I tend to think she's better in more improvisational type comedy and just kind of really letting her herself go. I haven't yet to be really terribly impressed with her in a more restricted, serious role. But I think she has it in her. Um, and this film got really close to it. Um, right. I just uh, I still feel like it was more tiptoeing towards that serious role and, and didn't go all the way there. So the people starring, which makes you think maybe it could be comedic, but I pulled up some a little bit more information. 
So Melissa McCarthy, Tiffany Haddish, and Elizabeth Moss. Mm. <laughs> and it is an American crime drama film. So okay. it's still, but Irish it's still... mobsters who take over organized crimes operations after the FBI arrests their husbands. Wow, that is really so, like similar to Windows. Yeah, and it's, it's set for a September um, release in 2019. Wow. Interesting. The so director got, I'm not familiar with. but So we've got that film, which sounds very similar to Widows, that we reviewed this, this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then going back to the Mr. Rogers film, I'm kind of, kind of bouncing around here, but sure. I was just reading the storyline for it because I was curious, is this going to be based off of a book or a memoir or something like that? It's a little more interesting than that, actually. It is, um, it's going to be the story, uh, the true story of a real-life friendship between Fred Rogers and journalist Tom Janod. Uh, he's a jaded magazine writer going to be played by matthew reese who was in the americans tv show really good in that okay uh he's assigned a profile of fred rogers and he overcomes he has to overcome his skepticism about fred rogers as a true person and i remember in the documentary won't you be my neighbor he's featured in that documentary and he kind of talks a lot about how yeah how he got to know him so So actually i kind of like that angle to it it's going to be a little different than just a typical oh let's just follow the life of fred rogers and do a Biography film. It's, it's going to be, be a little a more from a space and time. It reminds me a little bit of that film. Uh, it was at a weekend with Marilyn. Mm-hmm. You remember that where yes. it's kind of, we're following somebody who's now in the orbit of this famous person and kind of their experiences with that individual learning about them. So I like that angle to it. I think that'll be interesting. And I think Matthew, it's Matthew Reese or rise. I'm not sure, but I think he's a really <laughs> good actor. So I'm definitely very interested in that project now. So, Okay. Well, I think we've diverted enough to <laughs> tangents off of the film. Going back to the film, uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Yes. We both say good film. Uh, we both feel like maybe it's just a little withheld from being a great film. Sure. Uh, there are elements there that are definitely worth uh, worth note. But um, I just I personally wish it had gone a little deeper into some of the more interesting elements of the, fi- of the story. Um, or and just turned it into a musical with Melissa McCarthy and Richard right. E. Grant. It needed to be a and more musical And then it would have fit into comedy. the Golden Globe. I know. I know. I'll, we'll talk about the Golden Globes a little bit later. I've got some <laughs> some thoughts on those. So. Fair enough. Uh, but can you ever forgive me? It is a kind of limited release. Uh, it's worth checking out. And I think it's going to get some acting buzz uh, as the Academy Awards could get a little closer as well. So, All right. We're going to move on to our second review, which is the latest film from Alfonso Cuaron. And it's available on Netflix as of now. It is the film Roma. With director Alfonso Cuaron's eighth film, he tells the story that chronicles, I think, roughly a year in the life of this mm-hmm. middle-class family's maid, her name is Cleo, in Mexico City in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. Now, from what I've come to understand from the internet, that font of information, this I don't know if it's exactly what was happening during Mr. Cron's childhood, or mm. but it is definitely influenced by his childhood. Um, yes. he, he's actually said as much, supposedly, in interviews, and that 
I don't know if he had a maid whose name was Cleo, but he definitely, it was, it's definitely kind of loosely based or based on like experiences that he had growing up in Mexico city. I think he said it's, it's kind of a testament to the, some of the women in his life growing ah. up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, I think that definitely shows and we'll probably expound upon that uh, as we get into our review. Alan, uh, you and I are familiar. We've reviewed gravity, which was, um, his film prior to that was this. his last film, correct? Right, right. Yes. and then that was in 2013. You and I have both seen Children of Men, mm-hmm. Prisoner of Azkaban, which was probably, if you asked anybody, uh, if you kind of listed his films, that's probably his most widely seen film because it was sure. a Harry Potter film. Yeah, <laughs> well, and actually considered by many people in the Harry Potter film series to be one of the best entries as well. This is true. Yeah, it was actually the one that. You know, looking back at his his film career, I was not a big fan of the two Harry Potter, the first two Harry Potter ones, the Christopher Chris Columbus ones, Correct. I believe. Yep. But I really liked uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, gotcha. just because it looked so great and it was just shot so well and just had a great tone to it that I really admired. So uh, he, that made me a fan of his work from just that that movie I, I was first exposed to. Got you. Mm-hmm. So with this one, you know, what we'd mentioned previously. The one right before this was Gravity had Sandra Bullock and it was, you know, obviously out in space and it was, you know, groundbreaking in a lot of the ways they shot some of the, you know, shots that were supposed to have been done in space. So with Roma, um, and I gave you a brief description of what it's supposed to be about, Alan, how do you feel like this fits into Mr. Quaron's, uh, his work, his, I, uh, I feel like it fits in nicely, uh, on a, for a couple reasons. One it's different enough to give a little variety to his filmography, which I think is something he's got a great handle on. His filmography is pretty diverse. Yeah. You know, it's all over the place, but there's some common themes to it. And I think those are carried over to Roma as well. So really careful attention to the f- composition of frames and the movement of camera. Sure. And that happens in gravity. It definitely happens in children of men. Uh, it even happened in the Harry Potter film. So, that is absolutely carried over to Roma uh, as well. Even though Roma, you know, even if you're looking at it aesthetically, it's a black and white film yep. as opposed to the other ones he's done. This one is a very personal story where I don't think the other films really had that much personal story touch to it as much. We'll get to that. Um, yeah. And uh, so for those reasons, I felt like it was just enough different to give us something unique in his filmography, but yet... I felt like there was enough consistency in what he brings to the film that I think it's a very worthwhile, like, you know, you stack up his films. This one is absolutely like belongs on the shelf. It is a great addition to this building filmography. So I will go ahead and say on the record, I really like this film. Um, It took me one and a half times (laughs) to watch it (laughs) just because it's not a film that reward you do. It's a lot of long takes. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of scenes that really are just building more atmosphere and building more environment. Not every scene and every shot builds to the bigger picture of the story, but that's okay. That's, it, it, it builds a great environment around the characters. And uh, I say it took me one and a half times, not because I was bored or anything. It's just I tried to watching it late at night. And with subtitles and with long takes and black and white cinematography, it is it can lull you to sleep. And that's not what I'm, I'm not saying this is a boring film by any means, but it is one you do need to kind of pay a little more attention to. 
and uh, I, I recommend watching when you're very alert and awake. So, yeah. uh, but now that I have had a chance to see it, alert and awake, I really do admire <laughs> this film quite a bit. I think it's with this film kind of gets into a larger discussion of uh, how it was released. I think I don't think you can talk about this film without mentioning how it was released. Uh, it did kind of scattered across the country in different bigger cities. It had a shortened shortened theatrical run, but it has now it's out on Netflix now. And um, I think that's how the majority of people are going to see it. And I wonder what your thoughts as to why, you know, this director, he did Gravity. He got a lot of buzz for this. He made this film. How how and why do you think this film found its way to Netflix? I honestly don't know the why. I think I do. Do you? Okay, (laughs) because all I can imagine is there's some sort of financial deal involved to get it on Netflix. I, I want desperately to see this movie on a big screen. Um, yeah. And even watching it on my uh, computer basically is how I had to watch it. Sure. And I've got a nice monitor. It looks really good, but man, some of the shots I just, I would love to have seen on a really big screen. And, uh, so, uh, now I will say this of all of his films, this is being, I feel like the most personal It's probably of all of his films, the one I least feel the need to watch on a big screen, you know, gravity. You got to watch. That's a big spectacle movie. Um, You know, this one, I'm okay watching it on a smaller screen. I'm okay watching it in a more private, personal setting. Um, I don't feel the need to have watched this with a big audience as much as maybe some of his other films. Children Men was a great, I remember actually seeing that in a theater with other people and it was a really interesting experience because it was such, you know, some parts, especially the whole last 30, 45 minutes is just constant movement, action, kinetic energy. And it was fun watching that with a crowd. But this one, I don't know. I still would have preferred to see it on the big screen, but I can kind of feel okay about it being on, on Netflix compared to all of his other films. What's your theory? Why do you think well, this is, this okay, is going so there are a couple of different issues, um, but a couple of different interesting things about, you know, ideal way to view it. But why I think it got to Netflix, um, I'll just say, and it kind of, we reviewed Okja, which was a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. We uh, reviewed Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which was this year. Mm-hmm. And now we review this film that's also, you know, direct to Netflix. And I, I'm excited because I feel like Netflix is the, and this is air quotes, which you can't see because it's a podcast, but it may become the independent film repository for up and coming filmmakers or filmmakers who want to make something but don't think they can get a distributor or don't think, and they're, the, they're a name. Okay. Alphonse no, or the Coen um, brothers. Like, here's something that. we want to do, but we know it's not going to be commercially popular because it's not going to have like a bunch of big stars. Like, you know, this is a, we, they want to make a serial of the old West and they don't want it to be on TV. They want it to kind of be a movie, but they know it's going to be too I long for theater distribution. And Netflix is like, Hey, we'll take it. Yeah. Alfonso Caron's like, tell you what, <laughs> I want to make this homage to the women of my childhood. I want it to be in black and white. I want it to be a lot of really long takes, no known actors, possibly some first time actors. Set or in Mexico in 1970s. Mexico. Yeah. And I could see like studio execs start to glaze over. Yeah. You know? no, you're not. And Netflix is like, we'll take it. Yeah. Netflix <laughs> is like, nope, um, we're on it. We'll so do it. I think it's exciting because basically what it could become is new content instead of just having to buy content from Disney, who's now going to have their own you know service. Yes. But it's like, hey, established directors or directors that are up and coming, you can show us some of your work. We'll give you a place to put it if you don't want to have to mess with theatrical distribution. It could be. And, you know, you take some of the film services like uh, is it which one is it that's shutting down Filmstruck? Is that yes. the one? Mm-hmm. 
take services like that that did kind of specialize in showing some more a lot more independent film or giving you greater access to that uh, I think the fact that there may be more uh, open areas on the internet for distribution of independent cinema, if Netflix is going to play that role, and I do agree with you, giving established filmmakers a more creative outlet without having to worry about box office returns and distribution deals. Yeah, Buster Scruggs would not have made any money. Probably not. On, on a wide release. I don't feel like at all. Probably not. I think it might have done pretty good opening weekend because it's Coen Brothers. People want to go see the Coen Brothers film. But I think word of mouth would have said, well, it's not quite what you expect. And it's a different kind of format. And you got to think a little bit more with some of them. And it's, it's dark. Have done and it's as, dark. And it's dark. So it wouldn't have done as well. This film would do nothing on a theatrical release. Okay? Despite all the, you know... It's won a lot of yeah. critics awards. It's gotten, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, it's the picture of the year and all this stuff. You know, a lot of people are giving it tons of accolades prior to it even hitting Netflix where the general public yeah. could see it. So it kind of has it kind of has a lot of hype behind it. Um, I think so. OK. Yeah. Well, I, I think. Yeah. So my too. thought my thoughts on why it was on Netflix, a because of everything you and I just said about the length and what yeah. it was about. But um, there's a shot of full frontal male nudity that yeah. goes on for mm-hmm. I don't know 20 30 seconds. Oh, I think even longer than that. Okay, it's, maybe it's yeah, long, maybe yeah. long. It yeah. Okay, and what that says about the character doing it, you kind of you kind of like you shrug it off in the moment, but then as the film goes on, you kind of understand like, wow, that was really informational kind of a look into this guy's oh, yeah. his motivation, what he's all about, how he thinks of himself. And so it was a really important thing. Now, I can imagine, you know, who knows with all the ratings and stuff, but that could hurt this film getting into theaters because, mm-hmm. you you know, it would be R, but with that much and that extended, I mean, he's, he's basically dancing or he's he's performing karate yeah. moves. It's, it's his martial arts moves. Martial arts yeah. moves, but he's, you know, it's like you are facing the camera dead on and he does it for a little bit. Yeah, like, yeah. With a like, shower rod and it's right. just, yeah, very and it's not, acrobatic. it's not quick, yeah. you know, so... I think that extended sequence could end up, you know, I don't remember the last NC-17 movie that was put out, but, you know, you have trouble marketing that. Yeah. And this movie technically wouldn't deserve that because, you know, other than that, it's a pretty straightforward movie. There's not a mm. lot of, but that scene, you know, it's going to, well, rating, the rating is going to make it difficult. So I think all that considered, I think that's why this film. Uh, to me, it sounds like a Netflix. director can make an, a, a true independent film like this without having to worry about um, catering to the mainstream audience. It can be a little more free with what they decide that they depict. Because, I mean, yes, by the end of the film, as you see that character progress and you know kind of more about him over time, you look back and you're like, okay, I totally get why we saw this long extended scene of him doing these uh, martial arts. It makes sense now more than it did at the time. Um, So you wouldn't want to think the director had to edit that from his vision anyway he had he to cater it to a mainstream audience. i guess that's the thing is not only i feel like netflix is not going to make directors change their vision you know and i think you'd that's, hope not yeah and i think that's really yeah who knows if they yeah. do or not but that to me is just really cool where they don't have to worry about running time they don't have to worry about subject matter they don't have to worry about how they envision or storyboarded a shot it's like for ratings purposes yeah. it's like nope yeah okay whatever you know it's we're good um so i think that's really exciting as far as like mm-hmm. what that could allow filmmakers to do as we're, as we're going forward. I will say now we're getting into like the review, yes. <laughs> you right. know, what we actually think of the film, possibly because of the hype. Um, I'll say I liked this film. Mm-hmm. I wish I could have seen it in a theater 
simply because I think a lot of times the sound design would have been a lot more impressive in a theater as opposed oh, yeah. to on my headphones because I watched it on a laptop. Um, there's a lot of ocean noises. There's some um, some riots that happen, just mm. different soundscapes that I think they put a lot of attention. I could tell in my headphones that they put a lot of attention to detail, but just in a theater, I think it would have meant more. And the you know Alfonso Cuarón, I think he's he's kind of known for long takes. And not only in this film, long takes, but long takes, they're tracking shots. Mm-hmm. And there's several of them, and you it, you just kind of get lulled into a sense of like what's going on. And I, I, I think I would have been able to more appreciate it on a bigger screen. Whereas on a laptop, yeah. you just kind of, you're looking for, you know, an action or something to hang your hat on in a scene as opposed to just kind of sitting back yeah. and enjoying what's going on. I can see that. That being said, it was some of the most impressive storytelling through tracking shots that I think I've seen yeah. in a while. There's one where Cleo, who is the you know the main focal point of the film, you kind of follow her specifically through all the things that happen. She comes downstairs and has to close up the house for the night. She comes down a set of stairs and she turns off a light and then it kind of slowly pans around the entire, making a complete 360, but you see her go in and out of different rooms, turning off lights, turning off lights, and then finally comes back to the same staircase and she turns off a light that was on the other side of the staircase and she's done. Yeah. And that just, and granted, that was like a, a minute, it's a minute and a half. And, and you know, people like, may look at that and say, why, why did we need to see that? But I'll tell you. I know the layout of that house oh, yeah. so well right. by those shots. I right. mean, I feel like I know that home really well. Sure. I know where people are. It makes the ending scene so much more impactful yeah. when you come back to the house at one point late in the film. Mm-hmm. Because you've already spent so much time there, you feel like you know the home really well. Uh, that's that's why you have those long shots. That's why you have that deliberate camera movement to really give you that sense of space around you. So, And yeah. I'll say, you know, that... The film also takes, which is why, you know, kind of saying it probably wouldn't work in a theater or they wouldn't release it because it just wouldn't work for a lot of people. It's not going to be your blockbuster. It's not going to draw a lot of people. It's really long. And the first, it's like two hours and 15 minutes. The first hour is, although it has some really cool pan shots, is a lot of kind of slow day-to-day life type things. Nothing that kind of really grabs you. It's like, oh, this is a plot point. But then the second half of the film really starts kicking in with all these like traumatic type events start happening things are happening things yeah. happen to cleo and then you're kind of like okay and then it when the film ends i don't know it just it's like slowly building but it doesn't even start to slowly boil mm. until the midpoint of the but film it's a very slow build but i do i feel like it 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 earns the the ending it goes to you know the last several yeah. scenes uh, there's like three or four scenes at the end that kind of make your ending and they're all earned they're all well done because we've spent so much time getting to know these characters and understanding their relationships. Um, now that being said, um, I will say, I think, I think it was interesting how few close-ups there were in this film. Hmm. So much of the film was shot a little more from a distance. Yeah. Well, the tracking shots, I guess. Well, true. But even like when somebody's talking an individual, it's, you know, we've gotten so used to really cutting to close-ups of people as they're talking. Right. Very, very few. I don't remember really any real close-ups. I remember there's a few shots of Cleo where she's 
thinking or or something you know she's waiting for something to happen that the the camera will just linger on her her face but it's never really close and when there's dialogue happening i don't remember there ever being any close-ups to anybody i don't either it does keep you a little bit at a distance oh sure it makes you more the uh, omnipotent viewer as opposed to feeling like you're really in there right um so that's a it was a could it have been a little more impactful, maybe a little more emotional with that? Possibly, but I, I I don't think that was his he had any desire in doing that. He he wanted to be the fly on the wall watching and then giving you as the camera a complete view of everything that was going on at any given time. So you knew your where you were in this environment. Well, in a lot of ways I felt like this story that he was telling, you know, based on his childhood, for me. You know, I've said it before with Boyhood, and I can't remember the more recent film I said it with. I can appreciate it as art more as I can entertainment. Oh, sure. Um, I was, yeah. I mean, it was certain parts were entertaining, but I think it was like I can see his vision was I'm going to tell this story. I'm going to use lots of long tracking shots. And who knows? It may have been like a thing he set up. I am not going to cut to close. I'm not going to use close ups. I'm not going to cut for dialogue. I'm just going to let all my shots be like, you know, this is going to be the most Quaronist film <laughs> possible. Like yeah. you know, I can't make a more film that's in my style than this film. Well, and, and I you can, know, I can see that he, he did his own cinematography that for the film. Surprise I think that's something there too. I think uh, he, he, he seemed to be looking through the camera lens, but as a true director, in other words, he's looking at the entire scene sure. where a cinematographer might be really keen on wanting to get closer and more in, impactful shots on the people's faces. He was looking as a true director. He wanted you to pay just as much attention to what was going on around mm-hmm. the person as what the person themselves was doing. So um, I got to say the cinematography, I mean, black and white photography, it was beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. beautiful. You mentioned some of the tracking shots. There are like four or five shots I can think of that I just thought were really impressive. There was one shot, and I think it's when uh, uh, Cleo was going out to visit um, gentleman that was kind of a pseudo boyfriend at one point. Yeah. And as she's traveling out to that area, she goes by what was almost like an outdoor, not a festival, but like uh, they, uh, a guy was putting on stunts and he had a cannonball artist. Yes. Do you remember that shot? Yes. And just, I mean, granted, I know it's all timed and, and right. orchestrated that way, but just the fact that we just saw somebody shoot out of a cannon right behind there. And it was just so well done. The timing and just another one of those engaging shots. And the time number of times up and this is where seeing in a theater would have been a little bit more beneficial because yeah. I saw some who knows how many I missed, but the airplanes oh, flying airplane. by in the sky. And it's sometimes when people's hands are in a certain thing, yeah. it's almost like they're holding the airplane. Well, the martial arts there. instructor uh, is right. leading a, a large group and he even makes reference to, it's not like I'm holding up a plane or anything when you just saw a plane go by his hands right. up in the sky. So yeah, it was, um, and there's a couple, I mean, there's a scene in the ocean at the very end that he yeah. has one long, somewhat tracking shot. It's following mm-hmm. movement, but uh, you know, you really think about, how that must have been to put that together. And I mean, it was quite a bit involved. Oh, and, yeah. uh, yeah. So it was, a, it was an impressive watch. I will say that. And, you know, but I will say for anybody looking at it, it's not so focused on story. It's not really a plot involved. There are some character decisions and actions that do have some impact later in the film. But, uh, you, if you watch a film like this, you're really watching it for, um, I want to see the life of these individuals and feel like I'm kind of watching some real life happen. 
and maybe see a, a, a slice of life and a slice of culture that we don't always get to see either. So, yeah, I, when you were talking about one of the most personal movies that Coron had made, uh, the family goes or Cleo takes the kids. I don't think it's the entire family. It's basically just the kids to go see like a matinee at the movie theater. And it's like a space movie. Mm-hmm. And if we're thinking this is supposedly based on maybe something Quaron did as a kid, I couldn't help think like, this is his, like, I want to be a director. I want to make gravity because it shows a bunch of people floating in outer space. And I don't know if he was just doing that to kind of wink at himself or whether, but I was like, huh, I wonder if that was part of his formative years and seeing the movie magic of an astronaut in space. Like, well, supposedly, and I read this on a, on a bio of him oh. uh, growing up, he knew from an early age, he either wanted to be a filmmaker Huh. Or an astronaut. Okay. Yeah. So, so I mean, that was that was him. So, okay. Yeah. Well, and I, I thought it was interesting too how um, the film often paired calamities with major plot points. So there was an earthquake and a pregnancy, a yeah. fire and a no- knowledge of marital problems going on with a marriage. There was a riot and somebody's water breaking, about to have a baby. So there were a lot of back and forth pairings, and I thought that was and unfortunately, I guess a lot of those tended to happen more towards the second half of the mm-hmm, film mm-hmm. and that could make people get fed up with the first half and not even watch the second half. That's true. Um, yeah. So it would be it definitely shame. became more intriguing by the midway point. Yeah. The first half is a little, a little, a little dry and a little bit more just watching people go through their lives. And I think if you, if you don't really care about, you know, the mechanics of filmmaking, like the tracking shots, like we've been talking about, or the pan, you know, crazy pan shots. I think it may be a little it's boring because you know I can appreciate what it took to make that shot, or how yeah. many times they had to do it, or how everything had to be timed right. But to the average viewer who just wants entertainment value, I could see them getting a little restless. No, I could see that as well. So, yeah, I'll, you, yeah. I'll say that uh, two of the uh, two of the scenes in this movie, uh, and they come, you know, there again in the second half towards the end. There's a hospital birthing scene, and then mm. there's the scene that you mentioned. Uh, by the ocean. Yeah. Those two scenes. And the, I think the hospital may have been more of a lockdown shot. I don't think there was maybe well, as much it, tracking. It, it moved from one side of the kind of room Operating to the more. other. Oh, that's one true. Was more, okay. and, and one was more observation, watching, kind of checking her. And then the other one was actually right. delivery. And it was all in the same big room. Big room. And the camera just moved from one side of the room to the other. But once it got in the place, it kind it of locked, locked in. Where's and everything beach? was happening in different right, planes. Right, right. And the beach uh, thing went back and forth, like to the to the waves, then back to the yeah. kind of more towards the right. shore. and went back and forth a couple of times. Um, those two scenes were probably some of the most, and I wasn't in a theater, but probably some of the most uh, high anxiety that I had because you kind of knew where things were going and you were just like, oh man, oh man, oh man, oh yeah. man. No, I, I, I was definitely that way, definitely in the ocean at the end. Uh, it's it's yeah. a very anxious scene given what's built up to that point. Right. So, um, and I think two kind of impressive feat that he pulled off, at least for me, you know, like you're saying, because of not close-ups of Cleo, you hear talk, you've been spending a lot of time with her because, you know, at this point's over two hours. But feeling for her like you do, even though you haven't got a really lot of depth into her, it's all mm. just how she's acting and just how you, you kind of put yourself in her place like, oh, how would I feel if all this stuff was happening to me? I don't know. It was pretty incredible to get that much of a character without having her 
have like direct close-ups or a yeah. lot of dialogue that really sure. delve deep into who she was as a person. Cause a lot of times she's talking to her employers or just talking to kids or she's not even talking. It's yeah. just face. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, kind of, kind of impressive. Um, I'll say just cause you know, here we are coming towards the end of the year. We've mentioned how this has gotten a lot of awards yeah. and how it's high up there. I would be, I think it will be nominated. I would be shocked if it beat the one that you've talked about being your favorite is a star born. born. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and you I think are, it'd be like a moonlight beats La La Land. It would type be, thing it would it be, happen. it would be a upset to right. some degree of a big kind of a juggernaut film. And then you've got this smaller black and white, very slow, um, but, uh, character or, or not character. Not, it's more environment. A focused film. Yeah, I mean, it is focused and, on clear, but I agree. It's, yeah. it's Mexico, 1970s. Yeah. yeah, so um, I could see it winning. I think it would be a shock. I think it would be an upset. But I think right now, outside of A Star is Born, this one's probably, I think there's a big gap between first and second place right now. But this is, <laughs> I, I think, probably in that second or third spot. Right. Yeah, I think it'll be nominated just because it is an impressive film uh, for what it is. But um I think it's going to be a little tougher to really grab the audience for all the reasons you talked about before. Um, if I could just mention a couple things I thought were really of interest in the film. Sure. Um, the parking garage spot. Okay, I'm um, trying to think of just where the car parks. Oh, 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 at like, the house. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to me how this location almost becomes a character in this. Film. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and says a lot about what's going on. Mm-hmm. In the family in the house around it, but yeah. just imagine it, this is in you know some of Mexico the seventies kind of comedy a, at first happen with the garage, and then yeah. as it goes on, you come to realize, oh, there's the garage is a little tension. more symbolic of what's happening right, right now, and uh, just the fact the car it's a very tight garage for the car they have, the car's going in, there's 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 stuff on the floor, it runs over, it's yeah. just it's. Yeah, at the beginning, you're just like, why are we spending so much time on watching this guy park this car? But then you start to see that the it becomes a little bit more of a theme going on in the film. And I just thought it was fascinating. To I never would have thought this parking garage. And come to find out, it's actually early in the film when we're seeing, you know, I think even during credits, we don't really know what we're looking at. And you come to find out it's this parking area. And it actually shows up four or five more times in the oh, film. Yeah. So it's uh, <laughs> I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah. Pretty interesting uh, use of that. The house itself, the way the house is laid out, it's almost like this open house where you go up these stairs and there's rooms on all around you, right. but they're almost like they're all open to the to the middle area. So as the camera's sitting in the middle of the house, it can pan and you can basically see inside all the rooms around you. It's almost like it's this shared environment and it was really neat to kind of think about the family and their roles in that house. Um so yeah, there's a lot, lot more going on than what you just quickly see on the surface of this film. Some somebody that um, I thought of kind of after I'd finished watching the film, we've talked about how it you know focuses on Mexico and it's kind of like you know an experiential film about what it was like during that time, but it does center a lot around women, as, mm. as you said. You know, it kind of focuses on paying homage to the women of this childhood. What it made me think of is another uh, director, Pedro Almodovar, who makes mm. a lot of you know crazy movies that have bunches of characters and have all these crazy situations. But a lot of them always have strong women mm-hmm. in them. Penelope True. Cruz has been in a lot of his movies. Yeah. Um, so this was kind of like a more toned down and a more subtle Pedro Almodovar movie. But yeah. in the end, 
it does say a lot about women. There's a conversation between the employer lady and Cleo where she says a line like, you know, we're always alone or something like we're women. Mm-hmm. We're always going to, you know, it's just kind of like kind of stated kind of, you know, stated a big point of the movie kind of up front, but it wasn't, you know, it kind of like by that point in the film, you felt like it had kind of earned it. It wasn't like oh, it was yeah. being too, you know, much of a lecture. No, no, I think, yeah, I, I think everything in the latter half of the film is earned by what we've kind of seen happen in the first half. So, um, just another quick thing I'll call out, you know, we're talking about these big tracking shots and I know that's kind of becoming, I don't want to beat a dead horse with this, but I mean, I feel like there's <laughs> just impressive. so much to us. Yeah. The one inside the department store, yeah, crib shopping when a riot breaks out on the street below. Right. Um, not only just the staging of that shot to mm-hmm. go from a fairly quiet, we're in the department store shopping for a crib. It would be impressive enough the fact that it then goes when all hell breaks loose out in the on the street to go and pan out and show all of that happening. But the fact that it comes back in and right. like the hell has kind of crept into the department store now, and you've got a confrontation that you. I totally didn't expect to have. No. And just the way it's all framed and the way it's revealed to us, I thought was just masterful. So it was just a great, great long shot. Well, And with that shot, um, that's an instance of where I wish I'd been in the theater because you, even in headphones, you hear like the yeah. crowd outside, like yelling and you hear stuff going on, but in a way they're insulated. They're in this store, they're shopping for furniture, but then you hear it kind of get louder and louder. And yet <laughs> just kind of the coolness of having that, you know, in a theater, I think would have been yeah. would have been really cool. I I thought it was really good. This is typically not the type of film that I am a huge fan of. You know, uh, it is slower. It is a uh, uh, not really driven by plot as much. Um, it reminds me of a lot of independent cinema we've mm-hmm. seen you sure. know, over the years. But just something about it, it's almost like it's the perfect independent film that just is at the hands of a really really talented director making some really bold camera choices and directorial choices um, that earns the endings it builds to. So, you know, it was a, it was a very, very high elevated independent film in my book on that end. Yeah. Um, so I definitely think it's, it's absolutely worth seeing, especially if you have a Netflix membership. <laughs> just, I mean, you really have no reason not to see it. It's right. right there at the click of a button. Sure. Just know that that first, like Chris said, that first hour, it's a little, I don't want to say it's a chore. It's just, I can see viewers really. I can see viewers very, really starting to wonder what what am I what watching this on. for? Right. Uh, it does pay off in some some nice ways. That by the end, I feel like I think right. it's rewarding. There's the moment on the beach after the ocean talk, scene we're talking about. It's pretty emotional. I thought yeah. it was a really really well done scene. So so one final question I have for you, Alan. Yeah. Why is this movie called Roma? I, I have no idea. I tried looking <laughs> that up. I honestly did. I'm like what. Okay, well, I think I I think I found an answer, but there again, okay. you have to depend on the internet to be correct. Yeah, um, because it's supposedly the neighborhood in Mexico City where this all takes okay. place. Okay, well, that I would, I was hoping it was more geography based <laughs> because that would seem to make sense given how location is so critical of like what's their proximity to what's going on around them, their proximity to a lot of other parts of of, of Mexico or in Mexico City, right? Um, I'm, I hope that's the case. That's just I, a neighborhood. I hope that's just that's the neighborhood that. name because I couldn't find any other reference for it. When it bothered me because I, me being the literal person, I was like, "Oh, it's Roma," and then the movie starts, and before the 
main character's name who I've seen in the previews, her name is said being Cleo. I was like, oh, I bet, I bet her name's Roma. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like so there's was, Roma. Where's Roma? <laughs> where's Roma? <laughs> there's no Roma anywhere. So, so, I yeah. think it's supposed to be the neighborhood where everything took place. And that, if that's the case, that would make perfect sense to me. Because it really is, like I said, just like the parking garage area, just like the house, you know, the city around us. I mean, we got a lot of great shots of up and down the streets. and Absolutely. You know, so if that's the name of it, if that's what the name came from, then I think that's a perfect fit. So, okay. Well, that is Roma, uh, Alfonso Cuaron's latest film available on Netflix. I know it d- did play or is playing at a few select cities, I think, just to get a theatrical run out there. But it is a Netflix film and it is being shown on Netflix. So if you are a Netflix subscriber and anything about this sounds interesting, we do recommend checking it out. So that Chris and I are both giving it positive reviews. Um, yes. If you go in with a little bit more of the mindset that everybody's saying this is the best film of the year, uh, that's a tough standard to, to, to hold up. And sure. I think it's tough to kind of go in with that expectation and walk away completely satisfied. I do think it's a really, really good film. I think it's a strong contender. I think it's a, Really well-made film and uh, look forward to hearing people's thoughts on it. So now we're going to go on to a break. And when we come back from our break, we have some movie news. We have some uh, our recommendations to give, just like we do on every episode. So stay tuned. You're listening to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. We'll get back to your show in a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to The Mesh an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Find out more at themesh.tv and give us feedback on what you like. And now, as promised, back to your show. Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on themesh.tv. It is time for us to go into some movie news items. Chris, I have two or three items to share. I will say that one of them, and I'll save it for the last, okay, is the movie news item of 2018. I'm oh, going to wow. go ahead and stamp it down and say, this is it. This is the most You cannot news beat item. the news. So I'm going to go ahead and do other news items first and okay. let you do yours. And then I'll cap it off with the biggest news item of the year. <laughs> okay? okay. Fair All enough. Right. So let me get into my first one, and then I'll toss it over to you. I mentioned in one of our earlier reviews about Golden Globes. Yes. So we talked about this uh, this award. I'm not the biggest fan of the Golden Globes because I, I don't always feel like that they're the most indicative of true great film. Okay. Uh, it's a little more popularity contest than I'd like for it to be. But I think I heard here again, yeah. who knows, heard a rumor that supposedly it is the Golden Globes are generated by the Foreign Press Association, correct? Yes, correct. And one thing that I heard, maybe it was by an actor who was kind of mad, but that basically the films that are nominated and then maybe the ones that win are those that give the better interviews and make themselves more available I to the foreign that. press. And yeah. so that way, like, you know, some smaller films may get pushed to the forefront. And you're like, really? That got nominated? But it's because they gave better interviews that they made themselves yeah. more accessible to the organizations. And so that way. And I, I could I see know. that. I, I, again, I don't think these are. I mean, it's all a business. It's but. not an award program I'm, I'm a big fan of, but I think what we do get from it is we get start to get some little semblance of maybe where films are starting to shake out here at the end of the year. Going sure. into, They do say that these have some predictor elements to the Academy Awards. They're not a perfect predictor because the Academy Awards will tend to skew a little bit more towards truly like critic-driven 
uh, affair. Gotcha. But we start to get a sense of where the buzz is, I guess, is, is more of a pulse reading you sure. know, for the Academy Awards coming up. I'm not going to go through all the nominations, but I just wanted to hit the two kind of big categories, Best Motion Picture Drama and Best Motion Picture Musical or Comedy. <laughs> now, separating these out, uh, I think, yes. is ridiculous. Yeah. I, I, I think so few films, and especially the ones we're going to talk about, so few films really fall cleanly into one or the other category. Sure. And I almost feel like they're trying to force them into those categories at sure. points as well. I guess one of the criticisms among many that's lobbed at the Oscars is a lot of times the films are too stilted and they don't have enough of the general public consideration and like the best picture nominees. Whereas I guess if you yeah. have things like comedy, drama, musical, you're going to allow for more films that people of the general public care about. So and they certainly do. I think there's a few films here we're going to mention in the, these two categories that you know, are not going to get nominated for best picture at the Academy Awards, gotcha. but you do build a bigger audience by kind of bringing them in. I, I just, I feel like it just just trying to force a film into one or the other category. Sure. I think it's just kind of a ridiculous exercise. But so, best motion picture drama. Okay, we have Black Panther. I've heard of that one. Yeah, Black Klansman, the Spike Lee film. Okay, Bohemian Rhapsody, the Queen uh, biopic. If Beale Street could wait, talk. Wait, wait, hold on, just a second. So, Bohemian Rhapsody about the music band Queen. Yes. It's in the drama category. It's in the drama category. Okay, yes. continue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you got it. <laughs> Just wanted to. Um, and then A Star is Born, also a film Wait, with a lot of music in it. music in it, right? Oh, yeah, it does. Okay. But it's a drama. Okay. Because people cry. That's true. People do. <laughs> people do cry, yes. so it becomes a drama. Okay. Um, that's the five best motion picture drama nominations. Okay. Um, of those, I kind of knew Black Panther was going to squeak in somewhere just because it is the, one, one of the biggest films of the things. year. Absolutely. Sure. And, and it's a good movie. And <laughs> I think critics really, really took to it. Very happy to see Black Klansman getting the uh, acclaim. Bohemian Rhapsody, I had a good time with. I yeah. thought it was fine. I think the critics are maybe being a little more savage on it than they should be. Uh, is it one of the best dramatic films of the year? Um, that may be stretching it a bit. Um, if Beale Street Could Talk is the only one of these five I've not seen, mm-hmm. so I can't attest to that, but I, I'm anxious to see it. And then A Star is Born, I feel like is pretty much going to win this. Um, as my prediction is right now, I'm saying it on mid-December 2018, I think A Star is Born <laughs> okay. is going to win at the Academy Awards as well. I think it's going to be the big – they're going to be pictures of Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga like holding all these awards as they walk away from the stage. <laughs> They'll, yeah, they'll have to have handlers to help them. Yes, exactly. That's that's my prediction. Okay. Um, and then for the best musical or comedy, we have Crazy Rich Asians. Again. Okay. Not musical, but comedy. Definitely more I in the comedy see. vein. Yes. And that's another movie that I'm pretty sure will not be nominated for best picture. So it's good to see Probably getting not. a little more attention in, in yeah. an award show here. The Favorite, the uh, uh, length most uh, movie with um, – okay. Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz Rachel Weiss, mm-hmm. uh, is nominated for musical or comedy. Green Book nominated for musical or comedy. Okay. It is about an African-American musician. Musician. I assume there, he does play some music at some point. And I think there's, and I think there's moments of humor, levity. Yeah, okay. but it's still a film dealing with racism and, you know, okay. Right. <laughs> Mary Poppins returns. Uh, no, this one hey. I do feel like falls pretty cleanly. Musical comedy. Gotcha. Sure, got it. Now there's drama. <laughs> I bet you somebody's going to cry at some point. Maybe. But it's still more musical than not. Okay. And then Vice. The This is the uh, 
This is the uh, oh gosh, it's um, oh, the directors escaping Adam me. McKay. Adam McKay with Christian Bale doing, doing the fish, uh, Christian McKay, uh, Christian uh, Christian Bale mm-hmm. as uh, our former vice president uh, to George Bush, and that one. I mean, I know the trailers have played it up as a little funny, right? I don't know if it's going to be classified as a comedy. <laughs> Um, right. So it's again, that's one of those blurred lines ones where I'm just like, I don't know if that's, I don't know how I feel about the separating of these two genres. So, hmm. but basically these 10 films are what the golden globes are saying. Eh, these are the best films of the year. Okay. Any just general observations, issues, concerns on this list? Um, it's, it's an interesting list. Um, yeah, the designations into the different categories, of mm-hmm. course, is rather confusing for me, but, yeah. um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to mm-hmm. make of them. I guess um, good to see more popular films like Black Panther getting recognition. But um, I think, like you're saying, the it is kind of a early pulse reading on at least some of the front runners. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine, like you're saying, coming out of it, Black Klansman, Star is Born, there's and Beale Street. If Beale Street could talk, which is the movie. Well, I'm happy to see Black Klansman. I'm happy to see Beale Street. Yeah. I'm happy to see the favorite uh, getting oh, yeah. uh, musical comedy. Right. So, you know, those movies I'm very happy to see getting some attention, even in this more popular form of an awards program. Well, um, and interestingly, too, do they have a foreign film category or no? It's I don't just, believe they do. It's just comedy mm. drama or comedy yes. music. Okay. So interesting. I guess you can see the the differences between where we think the Oscars are going to go and where the Golden Globes are right now is – the film, one of the films we just reviewed, Roma, you know, that has a lot of attention, but it's more of a critic yes. lauded film as opposed to something like Bohemian Rhapsody or, you know, it's true or Black Panther. Well, or I will Black say Klansman, so. very true. Very true. Uh, now, Roma did get a nomination for best director. OK, it did. And okay. best screenplay. So it's okay. getting some love in the Golden Globe. It's just not one of the 10 gotcha. best films of that. Um, I take it back. There is which a foreign language. Which, interestingly enough, yeah. I think in the Oscars, that would kind of be flipped. Yeah. Like, for instance, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody might get script or something like that, yeah. but it's not going to get a Best Picture nominee. You know? so, so. I take it back. I was incorrect. There is a foreign language category okay. uh, at the Golden Globes, and Roma is, is one nominated. of the five. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. that makes sense. So Roma got a lot of love, just not one of the big the big ones. And it didn't have any acting awards because it's kind of – I gotcha. think the acting is a little more like, downplayed in the film. It's really about the direction and the, the style of the film. Um so that's the Golden Globes. We will definitely see. I'm still banking all money on A Star is Born is going to run away with stuff. <laughs> My prediction is best movie, um, best actor, and best actress. I think it's going to take all three of the key ones. I don't think it'll get best director. I think Roma could get best director. But I do think uh, best actor, actress, and overall best picture <laughs> will go to A Star is Born. Okay. That is my my prediction. Okay, fair so, enough. Yeah. All right, Chris, what have you got to share with us? So you mentioned Bohemian Rhapsody. I did. Which the director of that was? Um, it was Brian Singer. Correct. For 75% of it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't remember so, the guy who finished it, though. Well, we'll get to him. Okay. So um, if you remember, we discussed off mic when you and I both went to go see Bohemian Rhapsody, we saw a preview for the movie Rocket Man. And it was oh, yes. the first I had heard about this movie at all. And it kind of bothered me because 
if you can probably guess, Rocket Man is a biopic about the story of Elton John's life. Yes. And it seemed interesting, but I was just annoyed because it was like I was being marketed to because I was seeing Bohemian Rhapsody. And here's a preview for Rocket Man. It was just, you know me, I'm fickle. I was irritated. <laughs> so, but then I forgot about it. Welcome and, to Chris Fry's world. Right. Welcome <laughs> to my world. But I did think, huh, they were trying to do some visually interesting things. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, he's singing, I think, the title song Rocket Man. And you see both him and the audience start to kind of levitate mm-hmm. off the floor. Interesting visual touch. I was like, huh. But then I was still, overall, because I'm Chris Fry, I was annoyed because I wanted to focus on Bohemian Rhapsody and Freddie Mercury. <laughs> well, we had our discussion. We reviewed it on the show. You can go back and listen to that episode to see how we fell out on that movie. We thought critics maybe being a little harsh. Mm-hmm. So I saw recently the director of Rocket Man is Dexter Fletcher. And you're like, oh. okay, mm-hmm. so what? Well, Dexter Fletcher was the guy hired to do the other 25% of Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay. So just so, as a little background for everybody there. So Brian Singer was the director of Bohemian Rhapsody. Correct. Brian Singer, who has done, um, he did the original first two X-Men movies. He did Superman Returns, the one that had, um, I forget the guy's name that played Superman, but the one that didn't do so well uh, right. box office wise. And then he also did The Usual Suspects mm-hmm. was his first film. He did Valkyrie with Tom Cruise. Um, but he ran into some issues. He has uh, had a lot of allegations against him about sexual misconduct, uh, especially with underage people, possibly things that are all allegations, not saying that this is what happened, but it did cause there to be some friction on set. And supposedly he got fired by the producers because either he wasn't showing up on set or something else. So, uh, he got released, but they still use a majority of the stuff he shot and did. They just had to bring in. Sounds like Mr. Dexter Fletcher. Dexter Fletcher to finish the film. So he's the director of Rocket Man, the Elton John film. Correct. Interesting. So it is interesting because, you know, here he is doing a biopic. He just worked on a biopic. Um, so just fascinating to the people, Taron Egerton, which mm-hmm. he was in the Kingsman movies, which I did not care for, but he is playing Elton John and right. Jamie Bell is pay- playing the um, his musical partnership guy, Bernie Topin. Topin so yeah. It'll, it'll be interesting to see the movie, but I just thought it was odd how it just so happened to be <laughs> that this guy's also doing this movie. Just, I don't know, and, you know, and they're coming out relatively close to each other. They too, are. So, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's scheduled to be a 20, summer of 2019. Yeah, it's only like gonna seven or eight months apart from each other. Right. So, and I, it's going to make me wonder, which maybe I'll have a better feel after I see Rocketman, if the things that were working in Bohemian Rhapsody were because of Mr. Dexter Fletcher, who knows? Well, I'm, I'm interested in rocket man because a rocket man is actually one of my absolute favorite songs of all time. Okay. Two, the film seems to be looking at it more from a fantastical standpoint and more of a very dreamlike, uh, telling of the story, which I'm all for doing something different with the musical biopic genre. Sure. So where Queen was, where Bohemian Rhapsody was very straightforward. straightforward. Yeah. We are telling the biographical story of Queen, the band. Uh, Rocket Man seems to be doing something a little different from the trailers. Uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful on that. Yeah. And, uh, and I think uh, Egerton's a good actor. Uh, I don't think he's had a great role yet. I would, um, but I think he's got yeah. some great potential. So I'm anxious to see him something he can really he can really sink his teeth into. Well, so. and I guess with the the hair and the clothes and everything, he looks a lot like Elton oh, he John. Does. He <laughs> so. absolutely does. So yeah, yeah, that's great. Okay, well, I'm I'm personally very interested in Rocket Man, and I had no idea the director was the same same guy who finished out Bohemian Rhapsody. So that's very interesting. Yeah, very curious to see where that goes. 
Okay, Chris, I am a big, uh, I love the movie business, the side of the, the business side of movies. Gotcha. Uh, I, I read box office returns every week. I'm always fascinated to see how movies do from a business standpoint, just because I think it's just an interesting business. You, you put millions of dollars into the production of a piece of work. And then you release it out to an audience and you hope you're going to recoup that money back. And to me, that's just it's something fascinating about that whole, the way that the dynamics of that business work. So I'm always fascinated at the end of the year to see what are the biggest hits and flops when it comes to like how they really did financially, because sure. that's sometimes a little different tale than who's getting nominated for awards sure. and whatnot. Absolutely. You know? Now I think there's a little more correlation than we'd like to admit that, you know, films who do successfully well, I think are going to get a little better critical recognition when awards time come around than those who flop. Generally, if you movie flops, it's not going to get a lot of critical buzz at the end of the year, which is unfortunate because sometimes a film flops for reasons that have nothing to do with the quality of the film. Right. So let me just highlight for you kind of the, the big hits. And this is from Variety uh, from their website. They just put out the list of, you know, the biggest box office hits and flops of 2018. Okay. And just going to hit these real quick. And it's all based on what it costs to make the film versus how much, how much worldwide it, it brought back in. Gotcha. Yeah. Right? Very Easy business enough. perspective. There you um, go. Yeah. Gotcha. So the biggest hit. Of the year? You want to take a guess at the biggest hit? Okay, now, biggest hit of the year as of right now, so we can't yep. count things like Mary Poppins Returns because no. that hadn't come out yet. True. So, okay, well, so. even if it did come out now, it wouldn't have gotten all of its worldwide gross by the I end of you. December. So. so these have pretty much, they're finished their theatrical run? Yeah, this is, yeah, yeah, all of these have. Okay. Almost without exception, yeah. Um, Just biggest dollar hit, like, you know. See, that's hard because I could say the biggest dollar, but then I'm sure it costs a lot to make. True. So I'm just going to be dumb. Sure, just uh, Avengers Infinity War. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, actually, it's a good guess. The but problem, see, the, the problem with Avengers, really even though Avengers Infinity War has made $2 billion. It probably cost a buck. It cost a make. whole lot of money you to got make. a lot of actors. It actually costs twice as much as the film that is considered the biggest hit right now, huh. which is Black Panther. Black okay. Panther costs half as much to make as Infinity War, but has made $1.3 billion. So ah. it's actually done a pretty good return on it. It was $210 million to make. Okay. $1.3 billion is the gross uh, global uh, box office. So that's technically considered the biggest hit of the year. You know what's a shame? Mm-hmm. There are many things that are a shame. But specifically with that, if they would have spent more money on Black Panther, I think you and I would have been less eared. Because I feel like where the money was spent in Avengers Affinity War was with like the effects and everything. And some of the effects were Black Panther, like some of the battle stuff could have been done a little better the underground yeah. battle scene like i don't know it just could have been fleshed out a little bit more and that would have made it a lot better but could, interesting could be yeah I, I could see that interesting that it was still 1.3 billion yep 1.3 now infinity war did about 2 billion but it quite it cost twice as much sure uh, as black panther so it does kind of so black panther was one it was number one okay uh, Incredibles two is oh, number two. Okay. Uh, the production budget on it was two hundred million, so a little under Black Panther, but it also made almost one point two, one point three billion dollars as well. Okay. So it's actually the second biggest animated movie ever, which I didn't realize that I'm... after Frozen. Frozen is the top <laughs> animated film of all time, huh? Dollar wise, like box office wise. I guess I'm a little surprised that maybe none of Toy Stories aren't up there somewhere. Well, they're all up in the list, but as far okay. as like number one. Biggest grossing animated film, huh. Frozen. Okay. Now, Incredibles 2 surpassed everybody else. Okay. 
So it's the biggest film Pixar's ever done, dollar gotcha. wise. Yeah. Got gotcha. you. Okay. Now, number three, I think is surprising, but I think in a great way, A Quiet Place. Oh. A Quiet Place cost really? $17 million. So, the, you know, um, what's his name? What's the dude's name? Uh, Krasinski. Yeah. Krasinski yeah. just didn't pay his wife, and that's how they got <laughs> it. He's yeah. like, Emily, you're not getting paid Nobody's for this movie. Paid. I'm directing it. $17 so. million dollars was the budget, which by wow. any term, that's a pretty low budget. That's 17. 17, wow. and it's grossed globally $340 million. So it turned a nice, tidy profit as well uh, for being such a, a, a relatively lower, lower wow. price movie to make. Good. Yeah. Wow, that's really impressive. I thought it was, it was good too. Huh. Uh, then we have The Nun, which I'm not terribly surprised. These movies, these horror movies are so inexpensive to make. This one cost $22 million. It's the fifth installment in this whole Conjuring Universe franchise. And it's made $365 million. So it did pretty good for its budget. But horror movies, there's normally every year we have one that squeaks in and just really tops out the box office. Right, because people want to go see a horror movie. And it, yeah. and they're cheap to make. You don't right. need big stars. You don't need all that. Gotcha. Now, as I say that. So that was number four. That was number four. But as I say that, the very next film kind of flies in the face of what we just said. I think I know which one. Halloween. Oh. Yeah. Halloween. Okay. $10 million was the budget. Ten. So Bloomhouse, uh, Bloomhouse so Studio, Bloom, Jason wait, Bloom. So ten, it's the cheapest. Yeah, of all, of so all the cheaper than the Quiet Place. Yep, cheap movie. Now Jason Bloom, producer, does Bloomhouse Studios. That's their whole deal: is they want to make movies for ten million dollars or less. Oh, they I make didn't know that. Movies ten million or less. That's kind of their deal. Huh. And so Halloween tapped out at ten million. They spent their ten million, <laughs> but globally it's made two hundred fifty-two million dollars. So. I would dare say it's the biggest hit for director, uh, David Gordon Green. Um, Is it real? Yeah. And it's actually the most successful slasher film of all time. Huh. Isn't that crazy? So it's not the most successful horror movie because like no, you're saying, the nun made more or whatever. Uh, the, the nun made 365 million globally. Halloween's made 252. But as far as the genre of slasher film, where it's like, you know, you're following the one guy who's going around killing people. Right. That this is that definition of slasher film. It is the most successful flasher uh, slasher film. And it is the best opening weekend for a movie that had a female lead over the age of 55 with Jamie Lee Curtis. Hmm. Um, I would guarantee that $10 million production budget, a good chunk of it went to Miss Curtis to reprise her role. Probably. So it's still pretty impressive to pull out that kind of, uh, for that low a budget. I would not have expected Halloween to only be a $10 million budget film. It was yeah. a pretty high production quality yeah. for that. So, And then the last film on our hits list is... That's, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy Rich Asians. Okay. Uh, $30 million production budget, and it made $236 million. Which there again kind of notable because it was an all Asian cast yeah, and that's, that's the first right. time in a while that's been done. So, yeah. So I'm, I, I think it's great to see on this list of hits films like crazy rich Asians that did cater to an audience that probably hadn't gotten a lot of attention in the, in the film world. Sure. Halloween, a great low budget, but return to a, a franchise, um, in a quiet place, you know, kind mm-hmm. of just an, a, a, not a franchise film, not a, not a part of a, a shared universe. I mean, it was this own independent film for such a low budget and to do pretty well. Hmm. But of course, Incredibles and Black Panther, you kind of expect are going to yeah. be big hits. So, so it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Interesting. Now we go to the flop side. Okay. You want to take a guess what's considered the number one flop of the year as far as high production budget, maybe had some high hopes attached to it, but it has made very, very, very little money. Huh? Well, and I'll give you a hint. Is we it a just, DC movie? We just discussed <laughs> the star of this number one flop in our previous news item. 
your previous news item. Oh, so would it be the Golden Circle Kingsman? No. No. That was, uh, I think, the year before. Oh, okay. Um, but you're close. I mean, it's the same person, same actor. What is Mr. What is Mr. Uh, Taron Egerton? Yeah, what has Mr. Egerton been in recently that was released that... Uh, Outside of the Kingman stuff? I don't... Uh, Robin Hood. Oh, dear. Oh, yeah. Robin Hood is the uh, biggest flop of the he year. He was in that. That's per, right. No, per, that, that's just been released. Not true, but it's already... They even say in the right <laughs> of it's, like, it's still in theaters, but it's not making any money. Because I had Jamie Foxx in oh, yeah. it. And, and, $100 million production budget uh, and gross go, globally has been $65 million. Now, you take the production budget and you almost have to double it because that's what all the marketing and advertising on the top of that goes on top. So they're taking a bath on that film for sure. That's considered wow. the biggest flop according to Variety right now. Okay. I now, believe I mean I have no desire yeah. to see that movie so I can After that, uh The Nutcracker in the Four Realms is considered a big flop. Okay. 120 million 120 million dollar production it looks budget. Looks like all on effects and yeah. stuff cuz it looks It's cool. made 138, but there again keep in mind when you add in all the marketing and advertising on top of the production budget, you you are losing money at this point. Gotcha. Um this is one that surprised me. The other ones didn't surprise me. I felt like Robin Hood was probably going to flop. Just, I, I, you know, I was trying to revisit a story that I think people are getting a little tired of. Nutcracker in the Four Realms just didn't seem to have anything that was really going to carry it. It just look, it looks like in the vein of different story, but how they did the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland movies. Yeah. That's just like really effects driven. It just kind of people get kind of I know I yeah. get kind of burned out on that. Agreed. So, yeah. This is the one that surprised me. I, I expected this to be to do better than it did. Okay. And the number three flop of the year, according to Variety, is A Wrinkle in Time. The movie had a production budget of hundred million dollars. It has made globally 132, but again, that's not covering sure. the cost of everything else on top of that. Uh, advertising budget costs cost it to be really over 250 million hmm. when it's all said and done, and it's made 132. So it's lost at least 100 million dollars for the studio. That one I was suspicious of when I saw trailers and saw it announced, but I still expected it would do better than than what it did. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, that was I, – and I actually did get to see it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Ava DuVernay, she's a talented yeah. director. Um, Chris Pine was in that. Um, and Disney gave him the money to do all the effects. Yeah, something about it just didn't quite, just right. didn't quite work. It didn't connect with audiences as well. And I, I was surprised by that. So a little disappointed because I, li- I like to think, you know, uh, DuVernay, I think, is a, is a good director. Or I like to see her do some successful projects. I hate that that one didn't just didn't, didn't work for audiences as oh, well. Then, yeah, it had Mindy Kaling, yeah. Reese Witherspoon, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey. Winfrey. Yeah, mm-hmm. it had just incredible cast. I just... Yeah, it just somehow didn't didn't connect. Yeah. Yeah. The next two films I, I could have told you were going to flop uh, <laughs> as soon as I saw them uh, advertised. Okay. The Girl on the Spider's Web. That's oh. the uh, latest in the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series. Right. I mean, to revisit that franchise so many years after we had the David Fincher version of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which didn't really do great business no. cons- comparatively. It still was a pale comparison, I think, to the original, right. uh, the original, the original film, that the original had. series. Right. So this one to come back so many years later, and then you put in, uh, uh, you know, a different lead actress Claire in there, Foy. Claire Foy. And it just, yeah, I thought the advertising was just nothing extraordinary about it. Just didn't really make it sound like it stood out. Hmm. So it had a production budget of forty three million. It's only made thirty one million as of now. Yeah. Um, so that's considered a flop for for the studios. And then our poor Melissa McCarthy that we just talked about 
with Can You Ever Forgive Me oh. and Happy Time Murders. Um, <laughs> right. $40 million production budget, and it's made $27 million. So, Well, I guess that one's not as much as a surprise, too, because that had been in production forever, and then like it kind of been finished, and they kept holding off releasing it, and well, then they finally did. It's definitely not a surprise for me that it bombed, because yeah. I think, you know, even though the premise was interesting, and if they had just found the right formula to make it work, it could have been a, a better hit. But it sounds like they just didn't. And uh, supposedly she she had a $17 million salary out of that $40 million budget. So <laughs> it's a lot carried on her shoulders that didn't quite work out. So, hmm. But they, <laughs> the biggest flop, and this is such a shame, it's not a film I don't think you and I have seen. Okay. And I did have it on my list to try to want to see. Oh. Um, Sisters Brothers. This is a oh. film with uh, John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. It is a Western, yeah. kind of a dark comedy Western. It's the first English language film for French auteur Jacques Audiard. And it uh, it's made $9 million globally off of a budget of $38 million. Wow. So that one's awesome. I hate seeing this on the list because I do, I do think Sisters it's, you know, Brothers. I think it's yeah. kind of unfair to take a, a, a fairly independent film like this and then throw it on the global stage and show how much it's made in the world. But. <laughs> It it really has really stunk it up. I mean, it really did not make any money. So several of these flops I get, I could have predicted. Sisters Brothers, I didn't think would be a $38 million production budget, but I also didn't think it would only make $9 million, well, given the, the stars it had in it. Of the ones you've listed, that's the one, I, the flops. You know, I, I, am, I do still want to see Sisters Brothers at oh, some absolutely. point. absolutely. And actually, it's kind of that train wreck mentality. You can't help but look at it. I kind of want to see Happy Time Murders, at least the first, like, five minutes. Hey, if it shows up on Netflix tomorrow, I, I, I'll, I'll give it a whirl. But um, Just yeah. because, yeah. yeah. Although I've heard it's terrible. Well, and again, I, I, I certainly don't want to say that just because a film is a flop, that that means critically or quality-wise it's not a good film. Right. I, 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 half these films I have not seen. Sure. I have not seen Robin Hood. Haven't heard much good about it, but I'm just saying, you know, it's true. Sure. People could still enjoy it. The Nutcracker, have not seen it. Wrinkle in Time, you saw. I did see. Mm -hmm. um, Girl in the Spider's Web. Actually, you know what? I haven't seen any of these flops. <laughs> so I take it back. I haven't seen any of them. So I can't really speak to any of them quality wise. So you're the reason they're flopping. I am. You I need, need to, to go to the movie theater more. So right. I always just think it's fun to look at it from a dollar standpoint. Again, not to add the whole business element to an art form, but it does make a difference on how movie theaters are performing sure. and what kind of films are going to get made more of in the future. I'm happy that they're not going to make any more Robin Hoods for a while. I'm happy that they don't feel the need to make a big CGI spectacle of the Nutcracker anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm disappointed that they're going to be less likely to make films like Sisters Brothers right. and some of these because of, of the box office returns. So, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Can I just wrap up? This is really quick. This yes. is the biggest news this item of the This is the biggest news item. I know everybody's been waiting and say, come on, Alan, get to what it. What is it? What is it? Okay. They have announced the cast of the first ever Star Wars live action series, The Mandalorian. Okay. That's going to be on the Disney plus whatever network that's going to be coming out. Great. This is the live action series that's going to be uh, executive produced and written by Jon Favreau. Okay. But you've got different directors kind of doing different episodes. Gotcha. Uh, you've got Deborah Chow. You've got Rick Fayumuja. You've got Bryce Dallas Howard. And you've got Taika Waititi all doing episodes of the show. That's really cool. But... The news. YTD, yeah, that, the news cool. I'm bringing out though is the cast. Okay, we have uh, Pedro Pascal has been cast as the title role. Uh, so you may know him from Narcos on Netflix, so that's the TV show. Boba Fett, or that's no, somebody completely different. That's a different Mandalorian. Oh, yeah, it's not going to be a Fett, as far as I know. 
It is a. Uh, it's not going to be a fed. There's a whole. But the Mandalorian, Mandalorian is race. their like. That's their race. Okay. That's their people. Gotcha. You know? Uh, Gina Carano, who oh. uh, we know, he, she was in Deadpool. She was a former wrestler. She yeah. has done some stuff. She's in it. So there's going to be some action scenes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Carl Weathers, which Ooh, I think awesome. is awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. It's great. Nick Nolte is going to be in this show. In, in this show. <laughs> okay. And my absolute favorite. This is the news. Draw more, please. Werner Herzog wow. is going to be acting That's in a Star Wars movie slash TV show. That is weird. Yes, it is. It's very bizarre. I am so anxious Surely he's to find playing out. A, obviously, he's playing a bad guy. I mean, what? <laughs> I don't know. I, I hope he's an actual live-action character and not a voice of an animated CGI character. I mean, I want him to actually be on Wouldn't it be, be awesome if he was like a really grumpy, although this doesn't, they're not Jedi maybe in it, but he was like a grumpy Jedi master who was just like It'd be really awesome. Bitter. It just let him to like just run with the dialogue and just have fun with it. So for those of you maybe not familiar, because I realize Werner Herzog is not a, maybe a household name for everybody. Sure. He is a fairly famous director. Uh, he's made both dramatic films and documentaries. He's been in a few uh, of his films, you know, as a lead character in some. I, I think Grizzly Man's probably the one that it's his documentary. The that's most people most know well of his film in the last you know ten years documentary that got a lot of acclaim and he kind of was the lead he was the lead investigator of this documentary doing the interviewing and you hear his voice so much he's got a very interesting uh sense of dialogue and very interesting kind of just presence on the films that he's in definitely um he has done small acting roles before but this sounds who knows how big the acting part will be i don't know but i'm excited i just i know this is another service that we're going to figure out how to budget for month to month to pay for (laughs) whenever disney announces this streaming service and i'm not happy about that however i am excited about this show I, I, I w- I'm excited. The only thing that would make me more excited is if they also let him direct an episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would It'd be, be the bleakest oh, yes. episode of yeah. the Star Wars Mandalorian. But so that's what I'm excited about today. That's, okay. that's made my made my day, made my week. So Fair enough. Happy to hear. All right. So I think we're done with news. We're going to move on to the last segment of our show, which is our recommendations. So every episode, Chris and I comb through our our video library, our letterboxed movie list, or just stumble across something online that we catch up with. And we want to pass it along to you, the listener, as something you may want to check out. So a film that maybe got overlooked, maybe flew under the radar for people, or something that we just feel like is worth revisiting, even if you've seen it in the past. So, Chris, let me turn it over to you. I've been talking a lot lately. Why don't you tell us about your recommendation this month? So, um... I This is the third film in as many shows that's come to Netflix. I'll try to branch out, but hey, I can see it from the magic of my own house, so I don't have to go to the theater. But um, it's Happy as Lazaro, and it's a 2018 film. I think it's pretty much exclusively to Netflix. Like I think it went to festivals, and they must have bought it and stuck it on Netflix. Um, Just recently popped up there. It's, I think... The director's Alice War Walker, I think is her name. Um, it's only like her second or third film. And it's really interesting. Uh, it's the tale of this guy named Lazaro. And he's kind of a peasant who lives out in the countryside. And he works as like a worker on this tobacco plantation type place. And then it kind of follows his life a little bit and a bit of a span of time. I'm keeping it purposely vague because I knew absolutely nothing about this movie before I went before I saw it. Um, it is, I will say, the pace is slower. 
Okay. So don't expect, you know, it, it is kind of a more contemplative type mm-hmm. movie. The pace is slow. But for me, it was very rewarding. Um, there's some moments of magical realism, shall we say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but handled very delicately and it's not kind of in your face, not very showy. Um, it's just one of those movies that <laughs> you see it and you recommend it to people okay. and you just say, Hey, you should check this out. Um, definitely, uh, worth checking out, I think. And, you know, be patient with it because it does take kind of getting into it's, there's beautiful cinematography. Um, it's just, I can't really think of a movie that I've seen that's like this before. Hmm. Um, it's just, it's just very, very distinct, very unique. So, so the director, um, Alice Rorschacher, uh, has directed a few films before. I'm not familiar with really any of them, the wonders. Um, and then she did a documentary. So it's interesting. Yeah. yeah I had this, I added this to my watch list. I was kind of curious about it. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you. You got a lot out of it. Yeah. I, th- I think it's, it's worth checking out. So and it's, there again, it's it's on Netflix, so it's easily accessible. Oh, that makes it yeah. that makes it easy, easy. Uh, you know, Netflix has, as we discussed with Roma, you know, gotten to some interesting original films that they brought in, whether they've produced them or, like you said, probably just bought them at a festival and decided they're going to release right. like them. So. Buster Scruggs, which was last right. episode, yeah. yeah. So some good stuff out there. Now, granted, I, I hate anything that pulls us away from the movie theater experience, but in today's day and age, I mean, having the flexibility is awesome. So the, the choice for sure. Okay, so my film, uh, it's a guilty pleasure film. I, okay. uh, my family and I, we were snowed in this past weekend, as we, you know, we talked about, how uh, yes. a lot of snow in our area, could not travel anywhere, so that always makes me very grumpy. <laughs> so uh, we said, well, let's find something to watch. Uh, we've seen the gamut of Christmas movies in the past, and you know, you got your staples, and they're all fine, and we could, <laughs> we could have popped any of those on if we wanted to. But as I'm scanning through, I found the film that we decided to watch, and we had a really good time with it. Um, it's not the highest quality film. It's got a lot of issues, but it was it was still a fun time to be had okay. in the Christmas season, I thought. And the <laughs> film was Krampus. Ah. 2015, this is a film starring Adam Scott and Tony Collette, directed by Michael Daugherty, um, who he did a film called Trick or Treat. I don't know if you ever saw the years no, ago. No, but I've heard of it. Yes, kind of an anthology type uh, Halloween uh, film that got a lot of critical buzz, especially in the horror community, saying yes. it was pretty good. He's also directing the new Godzilla movie that's coming out in the next few months, the uh, King of All Monsters oh, Godzilla movie. Okay. So part of that was me tempted to say, oh, well, here's a film that was kind of in between those that is on TV right now I could watch and uh, is rated PG-13. Okay. So I felt like uh, my kids, you know, my youngest is, is 12, almost 13. I'm like, all right, we, you know, we could pull this off. And he's really into kind of wanting to learn about horror films and all that. So I, we'll watch this. Um what I liked about this film is it, it, it knew what it was. It knows it's being kind of a campy, uh, silly horror film. And it has very much an eighties vibe to it. Even and to it the point made in 2000. Oh, it's 2015. It was okay. only like three years ago. But it has an eighties vibe. Oh, absolutely. Got you. It's practical effects in a lot of places. Not a hundred percent. There's some CGI, but it's very limited. Uh, a lot of practical, a lot of puppets, a lot of hmm. people in costumes, uh, some really interesting creatures. Basically, the, the idea of this film is a, 
a boy and his family who's having a really bad Christmas. Uh, family's coming in, and it's just become a really horrific experience for him. <laughs> he uh, accidentally summons a festive demon, Krampus. To I, I the like family the name. Home. Yeah, Krampus. Krampus. It's just fun he to say. summons Krampus. this demon unwittingly um, to the family home, and this demon wreaks havoc on the family. And uh, there are just enough really creepy moments of it where even like me and my son watching it, we kind of looked at each other like, whoa, okay, that was, <laughs> that was pretty, pretty creepy, the, the, what they just did. Huh. Um, yeah, I mean, you got to go in with like shutting your brain off. Yes, this is a film where uh, family members get disposed of quickly and oh. the rest of the family doesn't seem to be too emotionally affected by it a few minutes later <laughs> and you're like once wow. you get past this idea of like what's really going on you're like all right just turn the brain off and just have fun with it okay. it's very much a gremlin so if you if you really are kind of a fan of the film gremlins back in the 80s which takes place at christmas it as does well. and okay. kind of has the same use of practical effects and puppets and you know gets a little campy and corny at places but also tries to scare you a little bit this film is very much a spiritual successor to that type of film. Hmm. I think some of the creature design is pretty interesting. I think there's some shots of the creatures uh, off in the distance and the scope of them and how they put them together puppet-wise is pretty interesting. Okay. And I absolutely love the ending of this film. I, 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 I will not spoil it at all, but I will say that the film takes a turn where all of a sudden you think, oh, that's – I see they're trying to – that's they're trying to they're going to cheat us out of this and give us this kind of ending, huh. but then they take another swerve and like nope nope we're not there's actually <laughs> this is the ending we want to show you, so it twists enough on it to keep it really interesting and uh, I had a good time with it. It's not a great movie. It is not one you're going to you know write critical reviews of and you know spread around to everybody you know, but it's a fun Christmas movie if you're looking for something different and you're all for. Christmas horror films. Uh, it is PG thirteen, so I mean, okay. older kids couldn't could watch it and enjoy it. It's not too uh, not too traumatic hmm. in a lot of places, but uh, I think it's I think it was a fun film. I okay. had a good time with it. I like Adam Scott as an actor. I like Tony Collette. They're both serviceable in their roles here. I mean, nothing nothing great. Nobody's like trying to win awards with their performance in this film. Um, so I mean, maybe you, Krampus prepped Tony Collette for Hereditary. It very well could have. And I'm sorry, but you have a whole action sequence of David uh, David Ketchner, who you may know from Anchorman, Anchorman. and all that, uh, fighting off uh, animated gingerbread men. So hey. right there. If that sounds like something you're interested in seeing, here you go. Krampus is uh, for you. Yes, absolutely. So that's Krampus. I think it's fun. Yeah, yeah, three stars out of five, maybe three and a half if I'm feeling generous. You know, enough to warrant it recommendation, especially gotcha. here at the holiday season. So. I had fun with it. All right. Well, that is our show. So Chris recommended Happy as Lazaro. I recommended Krampus. I know Krampus you can find on any kind of online service. I think I saw it on like the FX network streaming uh, channel. Uh, There's places you can see. I think a a Google search will find it for you nicely. Yours was on Netflix. So something we can check out there. Roma, we mentioned earlier in the film, also on Netflix. And then Can You Ever Forgive Me is the only one that, you know, is going to be just in theaters for a while longer. But uh, both Chris and I feel like uh, worth seeing and searching out if you have a chance to see it. It'll probably pop up in iTunes and a couple more Yeah, I would think so as well. All right. So that is our show. So, Chris, if anyone is hearing this and has some thoughts on uh, on our our reviews or anything we talked about news-wise and wants to share them with us, uh, what should they what should they do as soon as they finish listening to this episode? <laughs> you can send us an email at info at the mesh.tv 
and just put foot candle films in the subject line and let us know some films we need to catch up with before the end of the year. So when we do our like roundup or who deserves Oscars, we'll be sure to mention the film that you are passionate about, or, you know, Alan and I are always looking for recommendations. Obviously we just gave two send us some movies that we might want to recommend. Um, maybe they're older idea. movies that you think we should revisit and recommend on the show. Just, uh, that's a good way to do it. Also, we do have accounts on letterboxd where we try to more or less keep up with the movies we're watching. Maybe write a quick review every once in a while. And for my letterbox account, you can see if you're interested in the past, um, recommendations since we started the show, I actually have a little thing on the, one of my lists is all the recommendations I've made on the show. So oh, nice. if you're interested in seeing all the ones I've made over the years, that's, that's one way to do it. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. I do log everything on letterbox. I watch. I, unfortunately, I don't write anything about that. I, I tend to hold my thoughts until the podcast. But, Fair enough. But I will at least put them up there and then try to go back and do a star rating on them just so I've got some semblance of organization on my, <laughs> on my film list there. So Chris is much better on creating the list and keeping up with kind of our recommendations on the show. So I do recommend checking out his recommendation list on Letterboxd to see all the ones we've mentioned in the podcast up till now. So. That's great. All right. Well, that has been our show today. Again, you've been listening to the show on the mesh.tv podcast network. So we encourage you to check out other shows on the mesh.tv network and uh, feel free to subscribe to the show. If you feel like you want to make sure you catch every episode going forward. So uh, until the next episode, when we uh, will review some more films and talk about some more movie news and we'll be getting closer and closer to our end of the year, big wrap up of yes. uh you know, uh, our favorite films of the year. And I think we also try to squeak in kind of our biggest, our least liked film of the year. Is that kind of the format? We usually we come up for? with some different categories, but yeah, yeah. least liked of the film. Yeah. Biggest disappointment is yeah. always one I like doing and biggest surprise film. So mm-hmm. we'll definitely be kind of cobbling those together after the next few weeks. And sometime in the month of January, we'll release uh, that end of the year spectacular as well. So, all right. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. See you in the ticket line. Special thanks to Carpal Taller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Taller, visit www.carpaltaller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.